Our scripture reading for this Christmas Eve is from John chapter 6. John 6, I'm going to read three different sections from that chapter of scripture, verse 14 and 15, 35 through 40, and then verse 66 through 69 from John 6. Of course, John, the disciple of Jesus, writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So let's hear together the word of the Lord, John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain to be by himself. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we started this series, uh, and I, I said, you know, at Christmas time, uh, your understanding of Christmas time, your view of Christmas time, your posture toward Christmas time changes the older you get. You know, when, when you're little, when you're a child, like many of our children are in here today, and we're so glad to have you guys, it's all about anticipation. You know, you're excited. What am I going to get, you know? What am I going to get for Christmas? And, you know, if you're looking forward to that, you know, guys, it's close. You know, 24 hours, you're going to know, you know? You're going to know what's coming. What am I going to get? But, of course, as you get older you move away from anticipation in the same kind of way, more to reflection and introspection. Christmas is less about what am I going to get? It's more about who am I? What have I done with my life? What am I doing with my life? This month, we've been looking at that idea, what we're doing with our lives. We're all in a pursuit of this Greek idea. The Greek word is... Dikaiosune, dikaiosune, and it 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 means a righteousness uh, or a justification. That's kind of its proper Greek translation. But the the essence of the word is it, it, how it would relate to how we understand 
what that word's to mean. It, it, it would be the, way, the phrase that we say in kind of modern English, I've made it, right? I've made it. I've, I've justified myself. I am justified. I've achieved a sense of righteousness. I've made it. And, w- and when we say that, we mean I'm secure, right? I'm happy. I'm important. I've made it. This is, this is kind of a modern idea of justification, of righteousness. I'm important. I'm happy. I've made it. And now, here's the other side of the thought, and now I can rest. And now... I'm at peace. And of course, I, I mentioned that I got this idea for this sermon series on the righteous life of Christ from listening to your baptism stories. And all of you, when you, when you tell your baptism stories, you, you start off with some sort of decaucine. You, you start kind of some sort of story of how I was trying to justify myself. I did everything my parents told me that I should do. And, I, and if I knew, I believed that if I did that, I'd be secure, I'd be important, I'd be happy. Or it's some religious expectation, right? I, I was a good Christian boy, I was a good Christian girl, I did all the right things. And if I would do those things, then I would be happy, I would be secure, I would be important. But today I want to look at what I believe is the, the, the most important, or the, the most common pathway that we take to achieve a sense of dikaiosine, a sense of righteousness, a sense of I've made it. And that is this idea of success. If I'm successful enough, then I'll be secure, right? If I'm successful enough, then I'll be important, I'll be happy, and I can rest. And we all have something on the other side of that. If I, if I can just go to this school then I'll be successful. If I, if I could just close this deal, if I could just get this job, if I could just make this much money, if I could just make partner, if I could just get into this neighborhood, if, if I could just get my kids into this school, then I'll be successful. Then I, then I can rest. Now, you know, success, it promises such a righteousness, such a, a decaucine, such a, such a sense of importance. It promises security. But it never really delivers, does it? Because it always ends up asking you for more and more and more and more. It never lets you rest. There's always, there's always another carrot out there, isn't there? You know, I heard a story recently of somebody that thought, well, I could just get into this community. If I could just get into this school, that'll be important. Because that's where the influencers go. This is the school that you know, the people go to. And then, you know, I was hearing this person, they got into the school and they realized, well, within the school, of course, there's a more important crowd, right? That there's just these kind of people and then there's these people. You know, C.S. Lewis, he has this really interesting essay called The Inner Ring. If you've ever read it, it'd be worth, you know, 15 minutes. It's a little speech that he gave. But he talks about this desire that we have to be in, Right? to be one of the important people. And he says, you know, there's all these inner rings, right? So we, we first we have a vision of this ring. And then you get inside of that ring and you think, okay, if I just get in this ring, then I'll be important. But you get inside of that ring and you realize, well, the ring that you're really supposed to be in is this ring, right? There's a better ring. There's a more important ring. He says in the essay, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man 
do very bad things. That's the allure of success, the allure of the ring. I'll, you know, <laughs> Look, I know this is probably not right, but I, I just got to do this to get in, and once I get in, I'll be happy, and I don't have to do anything like this again. Then I can do the right thing, right? And how many times do we say stuff like that? Well, if I could just do this, then I'll start making time for church. <laughs> or then I'll start making time for prayer, Bible study. Or then I'll start taking care of my health or whatever it may be, right? I got to do, I got to get here because this is what's going to make me secure, happy, important. And once I can rest there, then I'll do this. He talks about how getting into the rings is always disappointing. He says, once the, once the first novelty is worn off, the members of this circle will be no more interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You are not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of the things that can really be enjoyed. You merely want it to be in. And that is a pleasure that cannot last. As soon as your new associates have been staled to you by custom, you will be looking for another ring. The rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. The old ring will now only be the drab background for your endeavor to enter the new one. Of course, he talks about this desire to, to enter the more and more and more important ring. And, and success is like that, right? You reach one level of success, another one immediately calls out to you, doesn't it? Oh, you made partner? Well, really, you should be managing partner. Oh, you made a million dollars? Well, really, you need to make $10 million. That's what the important people are doing. This is the promise with success. I want you to hear this. It promises you security. It promises you happiness. It promises you importance, but it never really delivers. It always holds the carrot just a little further out. Two points then, as we think about John 6, and I'll try to be brief, even though this is such an important topic. I'll try to be brief, because I know the six-year-olds, they're not, they're not thinking about success, they're thinking about Santa Claus. So, so number one, your imaginary of success. You know, the first little passage I read, John 6, 14 and 15, it's a really an amazing passage. I didn't read the story before, but the, the, the context, this is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, and he does it in this most amazing way. He takes, you know, two fish and five loaves, and these are not like loaf loaves, these are like little loaves, two fish, five loaves of bread, and he feeds the 5,000. And, and you know, a lot of people estimate that it was 5,000 men. It could have been 20,000 or so total people there. It's an amazing miracle. I mean, just think about this. Of all the miracles of Jesus, only the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection appear in all four of the Gospels. <laughs> so, I mean, this, is, this was an amazing and uh, incredible feat. And, of course, it, it had the people in this, this frenzy they were amazed. You know, there was, a, there was a Roman phrase that they said, here's how you control the people. Um, here's how you, you know, make the people happy. And the, the phrase is panem et circensis. Panem et circensis. And that's Latin. It means bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. You know, just give the people circuses. Just entertain the people. Just give the people bread, and they'll do whatever you want. 
And of course, that's why the Romans had the Colosseum. You know, the Colosseum, they would have the gladiator games. People were amazed at the games. And then at the end of the games, you know what they always did, what the emperor always did? He gave the people bread on their way home. And they said, you know, long live whoever the emperor was at the time. Panem et circensis. That's how you got power. That's how you got a sense of power. Well, you could see the correlation. Here's Jesus. He's done something fantastic. I mean, he did this amazing miracle. Everybody's got a full belly. In fact, the miracle says that there was plenty of food left over. Everybody has eaten their full. They've gotten their panem. They've gotten their bread. They've seen the spectacle. And now they say, finally, a Roman general for us. A Roman ruler for us. The, the Jewish vision of success <laughs> was the same thing as the whole world around them. It was the Roman vision for success. They just wanted the Roman general to be one of their guys. They just wanted the Roman, the, the leader rather, the Jewish leader to be one of their team members. And now they've got him. This guy gives us Panem. This guy gives us Circensis. This guy can do it. And so they're in a they're, they're in a frenzy here, and it says they, they tried to make Jesus king by force. And what does he do? It's an unbelievable story. He removes himself. He goes away to the mountain. He wouldn't let them do it. He went away to be by himself, away from the pressure of his crowd. He wanted to stay focused on the mission of his father, which didn't include a lot of earthly power. It's an amazing story. I mean, John 6.15 is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, to me at least, in the whole Bible. How different is this? It's so different. It's so different than most of us who try to put ourselves in the way of success, who try to put ourselves in the way of popularity. Jesus is removing himself. And the reason is, and I want you to hear this, his imaginary of success was different than most of ours. His imaginary success or his vision of success was different than most of ours. This point, the imaginary success, if you've been around Christ's covenant, you know, I often cite this idea, Charles Taylor's idea of the imaginary. And imaginary is not like imaginary, like an imaginary friend, like something that's not real. It's how you imagine it to be. It's your vision. It's how do you imagine success? What is success? I will be successful if... Whatever is on the other side of that if <laughs> is your imaginary of success. That's your vision of success. That will determine how you pursue success. That will, be determine, that will determine what it means to make it. And there's always something on the other side of that if. Now, I want you to hear this. If you have a certain understanding of the world, if you have a certain understanding of an imaginary of success, this story might bother you. If you're really honest, if you have a certain understanding of what success is, and you read this story, it might bother you a little bit. You could be reading this and you're saying, Jesus, this is your break. They're, they're going to make you king. They want to make you king. You don't even have to campaign. They're going to put you, they're, they're submitting to you. They, they want to put you in charge. This is, your, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You might say, well, I know when Satan offered you power and you said no because you had to bow down to Satan. Okay, we respect you for being a man of integrity, but this is not Satan, right? This is your people and they're giving you power. They're handing it to you on a plate. Why are you hiding from this? These are your people. These are the people you came to save. 
and they want you to be king. Why are you hiding from this? If you have a certain imaginary of success, this story kind of bothers you. So what is your imaginary of success? That will determine a lot. It will determine your view of Jesus. It will determine how you come to Jesus. It will determine what you ask for from Jesus. You know, in the first century, the people of Israel, their imaginary of success, their vision of success, as I just mentioned, was getting rid of the Romans, was, was having their own independence, was being a powerful nation, having a general that was greater than any Roman general. That was success to them. That's, that's what they wanted from Jesus. And those, so they loved Jesus because they said, Jesus will give us this. Jesus will give us our vision of success. And here's the deal. I want you to hear this. It's very easy for us to kind of treat Jesus the same way, to come to Jesus with the same kinds of commands. Jesus, I want you to fill my imaginary of success. Now, again, it's not wrong to come to Jesus with requests, but it's how you come to him. How do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him as Lord, who's actually wiser than you, who knows more than you, or do you come to him as one who can do what you want? Make you successful? How do you come to him? You know, my dad's very wise. And I really trust my dad. And I really love my dad. When I was younger, a lot and still today, but I would come to my dad with certain requests. And, you know, if the request was reasonable and he thought it was going to be good for me, because he's a loving father, he would say, sure, son, here's, have your request. But there was sometimes I'd come to my dad and say, Dad, I really need this. And of course, my dad would say, Son, I don't think that's going to be good for you. Or, Son, that's an unreasonable request. Or, Son, you shouldn't even want that. Or, Son, you know, I've been noticing this. You really need to focus on this more. Go do this. There'd be times I'd come to my dad with, you know, a complaint. Somebody had said something about me. And I said, You know, Dad, they said this about me. And I wanted him to encourage me. And a lot of times he would sympathize with me and encourage me. But sometimes he would say, You know, Jason, you might should listen to that. That's actually a good critique. <laughs> you know, I've actually noticed the same thing in you. Now, of course, when my dad didn't respond like I wanted him to, at first I didn't like it. But I love my dad. And I know he loves me. And I trust my dad. And usually, almost always, I found myself listening to him. And almost always he was right. The point I'm trying to make here, some of you have a vision of success. Some of you have a vision of security and comfort and important, importance that that vision is going to make it very hard for you to actually have a relationship with Jesus. You will like Jesus as long as he can help you. You will like him as long as he's helping you achieve your goals. Jesus, if you get me into this college, then I'll be happy. If you give me this job, if you help me do well, then I'll be secure. Then I'll, if you help me get rich, then I'll be important. You're stuck under some imaginary of success, some allure of success that is keeping you from seeing what success really is. Some of you have an imaginary of importance and security and happiness that's actually keeping you from finding the Lord, where security and happiness and importance is really found. William Barclay, the, he was a 20th century Scottish preacher. He said this about this very passage. 
He says, when we want comfort in sorrow, when we want strength in difficulty, when we want peace in turmoil, when we want help, when life has got us down, there's no one so wonderful as Jesus. Then we talk to him and walk with him and open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, with some challenge to our effort, with some offer of some cross, then we have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be that we will find that we too love Jesus for what we can get out of him. And when he comes to us with his great challenges and demands, we grow lukewarm and even resentful and hostile to this disturbing and demanding Christ. What if it is God's will for you to suffer for a time? What if it's God's will for you to not be rich? And that's actually where you'll find the most happiness. What if it's God's will for you to struggle for a time? Is, is God still good? Is Jesus still Lord? Or is your imaginary of success keeping you from actually knowing God? This brings us to our second point, which is the way of success. Jesus tells them, they follow him to the other side, looking for bread. And when they get there, he says this, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying the, the real way to security, the real way to happiness, the real way to success, I am the bre bread of life. Put your hope in me. It's, it's through me because through me, you can know God. You can have fellowship with God. And that is the most precious thing. That is the most important thing. I am the bread of life. Of course, he says in verse 40, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have life, eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And all these people were coming to Jesus and they were saying, I want bread. And he's saying, don't you see, bread will never satisfy you. Just like money will never satisfy you. Just like popularity will never satisfy you. Just like success, it always leaves you wanting more. He says, believe me, trust me, feed on me. I will give you rest. Success never satisfies. It actually is a lousy, it's a lousy way to pursue security and importance and happiness. It never satisfies. You don't believe me? Go talk to the most successful person you know and say, are you satisfied with the level of success that you have achieved? And they'll all say, I just need a little bit more. Remember the story of Rockefeller? I mean, Rockefeller, we're, we're impressed with Elon Musk. You know, he has $250 billion. That's pretty good. Rockefeller in our day would have $410 billion, a lot more. And when they went to him and they said, how much success is enough, Rockefeller? How much wealth is enough, Rockefeller? You know what he said? Just a little more. It never satisfies. And the reason that it doesn't satisfy is what Blaise Pascal said. 
There is a God-sized vacuum. There's a God-sized vacuum in the heart of every person. Do you believe that? Do you you hear that? A God-sized vacuum. And you try to fill it with all this stuff. What, What Pascal is saying, and it's true, is even $410 billion worth of success will not fill this vacuum. It's still bigger. Now, only God can fill it. And this is the promise of Christ, that in Christ, in Jesus, you can know God. And this is the promise of Christmas, that Jesus has come to save us, to introduce us to God, to reconcile us with God, so that God could fill our hearts. And this is what we've been talking about, that Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, that he has achieved a perfect record of righteousness, that in him we can stand before God, not just with Jesus as a model of righteousness, but Jesus actually achieving righteousness. The, the theological word is that he's imputed his righteousness to you through faith so that you can stand before God with nothing to prove. You can stand before God as accepted as Jesus is. Do you believe that? And of course, in the death of Christ, he's paid for every sin. He didn't just die a martyr's death. Say, well, he really believed in what he preached. No, that's not, that's not what the death of Jesus is about. Jesus was dying for you. Your sin, your record of sin was imputed to him. And if that's true, then you can stand before God and there is no condemnation that you could fear. You could stand before God without fear of being found out. Because guess what? You've already been found out. And your sin has already been dealt with in the cross of Jesus through faith. And of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose, he overcame death. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And as Romans 6 says, if we have died with him, we will also be raised with him. This means that in Jesus, you can have fellowship with God, eternal fellowship with God. As Jesus says in verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And if that's true, and if you believe that, That and only that can fill your heart. That and only that can give you a long-lasting sense of rest and peace that won't wear out. Look, you know, I'm not a successful person. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any very meager accomplishments. I'm just a simple boy from Alabama trying to make it in the big city. But I want you to hear this, but I know God. I know God, and I have fellowship with God. And in Christ, God calls me his son, and I can share in the love of God. Do you know how great of a love that is? And I can share in the wisdom of God. Do you know how wise he is? And I can share in the peace and satisfaction of God. Do you know, do you know anything on earth that gives you a satisfaction that God can give? Certainly not success. And more than that, I share in the inheritance of God. Everything that is his is now mine. As we read in Ephesians 2, that in the coming ages, he wants to lavish on his children this abundance of his love for us. And this is the invitation of this whole series. You know, all of us, we're out there, we're trying to make it. Trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to do something successful so we can find security and importance and happiness. The invitation of Jesus, that we've been talking about through this whole series from Matthew 11, he says this, and he says this to you at Christmas time come to me. Come to me. Trust me. It's the same thing he says here in John 6 feed on me, 
Look to me, delight in me, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, this is a simple invitation, but it's hard to receive. And it's hard to receive because we have this imaginary of success. And here's the deal. This imaginary of success that says if you're successful, then you'll be secure. If successful, then you'll be happy. It's reinforced every day, all of our lives, all the time. It's all around us all the time. But that's why it's so important to come into here and to be reminded. And I pray that even through these words, the Holy Spirit of God would pierce through all of that and that God would give you a vision of security and that God would give you a vision of righteousness, and that God would give you a vision of happiness, and that God would give you a position, a vision of importance that's found in him. Come to me. Jesus, feed on me. Be satisfied by me. I am the bread of life. You know, he said this to the people. These people, they followed him after he fed the 5,000, the, the crowds, the masses, they followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he, he started preaching these things to him. He said, feed on me, look to me. I'm the one that can give you rest. And you know what? You know what they did? They all abandoned him. They all walked away. They had a vision of worldly success. They said, no, Jesus, beat the Romans. Make us a powerful country. Quit talking about your bread, you know, your, your, your flesh and your blood and your, this bread stuff. Do what we want you to do. He said, no, feast on me. I'm the one that can actually satisfy your soul. And they all abandoned him. John 6, 66 says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They had a different imaginary of success. And Jesus, of course, he looks at his 12. After all these people are walking away, I can imagine the scene. There's hundreds and thousands of people walking away from him. And he looks at the disciples, and they're standing there. And he says, do you want to go too? Do you want to leave me too? Now, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know what they understood of what Jesus had said in John 6. It's a hard speech to understand. And I'm sure that they were very discouraged. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about the day before, they want to make Jesus king by force, and now everyone's abandoning him. Can you imagine if you've put your, you know, put your life in this stock? Everybody was buying yesterday. Everybody's selling today. How discouraging that must have felt. I don't know exactly what they understood, but what Peter says here, it is one of the most precious Bible verses to me. It's one of the most amazing replies. In fact, I, I, if I have a tombstone one day, I want it on my tombstone. And Peter just says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I want you to hear this. There are times where I'm frustrated with Christianity there are times where I'm frustrated with my own faith. There are times where I'm frustrated with the church. I've, I've experienced all of this stuff. But I believe with Peter, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. To whom else will I go? And so I follow him. 
even though following him doesn't always make sense to me. I, I, when it doesn't, I chalk it up as my own foolishness. Even though a lot of times I'm frustrated with his other followers. I believe that he has the words of life, though. That's my faith. That's why I want this on my tombstone. And the thing that I love about Christmas, it's an invitation to follow Jesus, to believe this. And the thing I love about a Christmas Eve service like this is it's an invitation to believe this together. That's the beauty of gathering. We believe this together. You know, your faith increases my faith. And my faith, I hope, increases your faith. And as we believe this together, as we look to Jesus together, as we rest in him together, our faith grows. And we can find a true security, a true importance, a true happiness. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. All you who are out there laboring and heavy laden, trying to find some sense of righteousness or success, and Jesus says, I will give you rest. And so tonight we're going to, or this morning, we're going to light candles. And these candles are going to be for us a sign of our faith and the faith that we share. The faith that we share together, the sign that, that God has come to us, that he's called us into fellowship with him. And not just fellowship with him, but fellowship with one another. I'm gonna pray, but after I pray, we're gonna, as we're lighting, we're gonna sing this song. And I love the first line. It says this, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even in this time, as we meditate on these words, as we think about all that you have done for us through Jesus, your son, I pray you would increase our faith, that we would look to Jesus, that we would believe that he is the bread of life, the only thing that can really satisfy our souls and laborers and heavy laden people like us by faith can rest in him. Lord, do this in our hearts, I pray. Amen.